0: We're looking forward to it, and so I want to give you an assignment. Now, I'm not, I I taught at the Bible college. I am nowhere near being professor caliber or anything like that, but I got to give you an assignment. Read this afternoon, Judges 6, 7, and 8. You can do that at halftime, there's plenty of time. Judges 6, 7, and 8. Familiarize yourself again. Uh, I'm sure many of you have read it many, many times, but from the book of Judges and the story of Gideon, and so we're going to be going through that account uh, this morning and then, God willing, through Wednesday night. And I'm definitely looking forward to it. I've never used this in a revival meeting. I've never preached through uh, the story of Gideon. In a revival, I've used the story of Gideon like I would the story of Joseph or something at youth camp and things like that, but never in a revival meeting. So I've been kind of looking forward to how this is going to turn out myself. But I believe it's what the Lord would have us to do, and so let's look together this morning in Judges and chapter number 6, if you'd open your Bibles there. And if you're able to stand for the reading of the Word of God, let's do that. And we're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to carry on from here uh, where we stop today to the next several verses tonight. And if you'd read ahead, I guarantee you, if you'd read ahead, it could shave where everybody comes familiar with the story. It could save 10 minutes off a sermon. I doubt if it will, but it could if everybody would just refresh your mind and uh, know exactly what the account is saying. All right, let's start reading in verse number 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. May I say they did evil again in the sight of the Lord? And after this story of Gideon, they will do evil again in the sight sight of the Lord. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens, which are in the mountains, and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites, they were in, uh, in cohorts with the Amalekites, and the children of the east, lesser tribes or people groups there, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth, till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel." "...neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord." After seven years. Incredible, isn't it? It took seven years, but they finally cried to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and draved them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell, but ye, soon, uh, but ye have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel of the Lord, and sat under an oak, which was an Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abbi Ezrite. And his son Gideon thrashed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, unto Gideon, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all the miracles, or his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us uh, up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us, and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites, have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful today for your precious Word. And we know, I would call this one of the great exciting stories of the Bible, Judges 6, 7, and 8, no question about it. But we know that the story is not here for story's sake. It's not here just to give us a piece of history of this time of the judges when Gideon showed up upon the scene. We know, O God, that your word, uh, what it says, it continues to say to us if we but have ears to hear it. If we will give attention to it, if we'll mine out from here uh, why this is here, far more than a, an historical account, uh, an interesting story in history, but it's for our learning and our admonition. And I pray that we would learn and be admonished by your word, both this morning and in the services to Paul, and we'll thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless you. You may be seated. Without going into detail, I'm quite sure that no one could look at the state of our republic, the United States of America, at this time, no one would look at it and evaluate what is taking place and come to this conclusion. This is what the founding fathers had in mind. Can I use some oaky on you? It ain't so. This is not what our founding fathers had in mind. And as a matter of fact, as time goes on, I'm among well-educated people who understand that we are growing farther and farther from what the founding fathers intended. Now, it kind of makes us stop and think when we look at our culture, our society, How did we get here? It didn't just happen overnight. How did we get here? Now, let's go then and think about the nation of Israel. And you read with me that in this particular account and at this particular season or time in their history, they are in a bad way. They're in a bad way. We're going to go into the details of it in a minute. and I don't want to go into that now. But I will just say that after 4,400 years rather of bondage and slavery in Egypt, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they have finally come to this promised land, led to there, by Moses, led into there and conquered by Joshua. And now they are about 200 years into their existence in the land of Canaan. And they are in the time when there was no king in Israel. And they were rejecting the authority of God in their national life. And so God had judges that would come upon the scene. To get a good background of this, uh, just read uh, Judges in chapter 2. And it kind of sets the table for what is transpiring and what takes place uh, all through the book of Judges. But we remember that when God gave them the promised land, what what does that mean it was a promised land? Well, there's the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants when God made the covenant with Abraham back in the book of Genesis and chapter number 12. And so this is the land that God had promised them. But not only did he promise them the land, he promised them there was awaiting them certain blessings within that land as well. As a matter of fact, when they went into the land of uh, of, uh, Canaan, they were supposed to go into a land of rest. Rest? Yes, well, it doesn't mean they weren't going to work, but they wouldn't have the slavery they had before and the bondage that they knew. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't have toil and labor to do in, in working the ground and the vineyards and the crops and such as that. But it does mean, ladies and gentlemen, that they were going to have rest from the wandering that they had known and watched a whole generation of unbelievers die in that wilderness. So they were going to enter into that land, and they were going to have vineyards and crops and flocks and herds and houses, many of which they wouldn't even had to have built themselves. And they were going to move into this land. It's supposed to be a land of rest. It's supposed to be a land of peace. Once they conquered and drove the enemies out of the land, the way it was supposed to work was they would conquer and drive the enemies out of the land. Then they would be done with war and they'd be done with fighting and they could go on with their life. It was to be a time of rest and peace and prosperity because God said he's going to multiply them. Uh, all you got to do is go read the book of, Gen- uh, of Deuteronomy, rather, and chapter number 28, it's a, to me a fascinating chapter. Because in Deuteronomy 28, before they go into the land of Canaan, and before Moses dies, God tells them very simply, in about the first 16, 17, 18 verses of the chapter, He says, if you'll do what I say, my blessings will overtake you. I preached a sermon one time called, Do what God says and look out behind you. Because His blessings are on the way. And that's exactly what God said to them. If you'll just do what I say, watch this now. He said, my blessings will overtake you. And then for about the next 50 verses, he said, but if you won't do what I say, here's what's going to happen to you. And none of it is desirable. None of it is favorable. None of it is something that you want in your life or that they wanted in their life. But say by the time we come here uh, to this account, they are in the promised land and you can see how our account begins. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, when you look at the account here, you have to look at it and ask yourself the question. How did they get here? How could they be in this shape? God meant for this to be a land of rest? Yes, he did. God meant for this to be a land of peace? Yes, he did. God meant for them to be a this to be a land of prosperity? Yes, he did. Did you read the mess therein? You've got to stop and ask the question. How did they get here? How did this happen? Because actually, they are a people living under another kind of bondage and under another kind of oppression. Dif- excuse me, different than the land of Egypt, but oppressive nonetheless. Uh, different than the land of Egypt, but not really free, you wouldn't read this and say, boy, these people are enjoying their freedom. Not at all, because that isn't where they were. Now, I do know this. This is not what God intended. Where they are living and how they are living is not how God intended and God even at this time, would have them free from the kind of oppression they knew and the kind of life that they were now living. But in order for them to experience this kind of freedom, they had to be confronted about the facts. About the facts. They had to own up to the fact of the matter. Excuse me. As a pastor, I've tried to help people along the way. And you know the hardest people to help are those that won't own up to the fact that they're in a mess. Those that won't own up to the fact how they got in that mess. And those that won't own up to the fact that they're going to have to make some changes to get out of the mess. Is everybody listening to me here? And this is basically what we have going on here. And so God, though His people have done evil in His sight again, and they are in this miserable condition, God confronts them with the facts. And so if you look in our account, in the first uh, six verses, what God does is He lays out here exactly where they are. We can break it down into two simple parts, verse 1 through 6. They experience fear, and they experienced famine. Fear and famine. It's right here in the first six verses. Fear? Yes, fear of the Midianites. You know who the Midianites are? They are the descendants of Abraham also. After Sarah died, uh, Abraham married this uh, woman by the name of Keturah, and Keturah bare a son by the name of Midian. These are the descendants of Keturah, Uh, and they are the descendants of her son with Abraham, and they are called in the Scripture the Midianites, or the land of Midian is the place where they occupied. Now, here's what we got to understand about the Midianites. You don't read anything in history good about the Midianites. (laughs) There's not one word in the whole account of the Word of God that will make you think, now, these were a good people, actually. They actually were not a good people. And they were a rather nomadic people, and they lived, basically, they existed the way that we read about here. They exist by robbing others. They exist by plundering others. And in this particular case, as Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, they had the green light, apparently, from God to come in and do their thing with the uh, with the Israelites. And when they did, they put them in fear. Now, you got to have to understand that they also had some friends called the Amalekites. You know who Amalek is? He's the grandson of Esau, you know, Jacob and Esau. Esau wasn't the son of promise. Jacob was the son of promise. And Esau was a wild man. And Esau had a son by the name of Amalek. And the Amalekites are descendants of Amalek. And so the Midianites and the Amalekites hooked up together and some of the other groups of the east. As you read through the Old Testament history, you can see pretty clearly that from the east you'd have the inhabitants of Mount Seir, you'd have some of the Moabites, you'd have these various people groups that would sometimes assemble themselves together to go against Israel or against some other foe. And in this particular place, uh, place, they have these groups uh, put together and they actually formulated quite a number of people. Uh, when we deal a little bit later on uh, with the army of the uh, Midianites that they've assembled together, there'll be 132,000 men in their army. Now, I don't know how you'd think about that now, but I'll just tell you right now, in that day and time, that was a formidable group or a formidable army of 132,000. And here they are, and they have invaded the land that God gave to the people of Israel so that they might what? Rest, have peace, and prosper. Well, it's anything but because they're operating in fear. It says right here that they are hiding in the dens and in the caves. And I just think, what a pathetic sight. That this is the people that God delivered out of the land of Egypt and gave them the ability to drive most of the enemies out of the land and to possess this land. And here you've got a nomadic, renegade bunch of plunderers and thieves coming in, and you have the people of God who are in utter fear of the situation. And rather than calling on God, they hide for seven years. And they're in the dens, and they're in the caves. Even when we're introduced to Gideon, he is manifesting his fear. And I'll show you that in just a little bit. Fear is everywhere. It permeates the society. Right now, if you listen to the news and you hear about China and the thirst of China to become the superpower of the world and having uh, uh, maybe access to the support of Russia... And then North Korea and on and on. There are people that can read that kind of thing and think, oh my goodness. And fear can prevail. And I'm not saying it's nothing to be concerned about. Neither do I make jokes about it and laugh it off. Uh, The world is in a mess. But I'm just saying as the people of God, should they ever have been in a position of fear no matter who was coming against them? The point is they had no reason. God had so worked among them. They had no reason to be afraid. But they were, to the point it brought famine. This famine didn't come because there wasn't any rain. This famine didn't come because God withheld the rain and the moisture and the drought came. That isn't how this famine came. This famine came because if they got a crop out, the Midianites plundered it. If they got uh, some sheep and flocks and herds over here, they'd come and spoil them or steal them and take them away. And the next thing you know, they're doing without. Their households can't provide. There's not sufficient and adequate because they've been invaded by these Midianites and their cohorts. And they bring them in there together. And they are plundering the land. So you got them living in fear and you got them living in, in famine, excuse me, under the threat of an inferior nation. I want to remind you of that again. Under the threat of an inferior nation. Excuse me. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world and their God got him out of Egypt and left Egypt in shambles. Somebody say amen. This is what God did for these people. This isn't a fairy tale. That's exactly what happened. And you mean that God gave you blessing, power, and authority to escape from the Egyptians and left the land of Egypt in an utter absolute mess and Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea. You you mean God did that for you? And you're afraid of whom? Midianites? They're no world power. They're no real power at all. Just a bunch of plunderers, thieves, and renegades. And here are the very people of God in fear and in famine because of an inferior nation. Now, the reason I make so much of that is this. Let's not forget who we are. I love the Psalms like everybody else that loves the Bible. I love that 95th Psalm where it says, for we are the people of his pasture. And we are the sheep of His hand. I love it where Jesus taught us to pray. And when we pray, we are to say, Our Father which art in heaven. Now if I, by God's authority, am able to call Him my Father, then I can, by God's authority, say, I'm His child. I'm a child of God. Are you saved? Well, don't get too excited about it. You're just a child of God. I mean, don't get too revved up. God is your Father. And when you pray you go talk to Him as your Father on His authority. This isn't some positive thinking from a bunch of positive thinking preachers that try to make us think positive about everything. This is the Word of God, friend, that if you are saved and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have standing with God on His authority that He is your Father and you are His child. And the reason I'd ever bring this up from this account and about this account is that so many of the people that profess to be The children of God are living at a level that you have to ask, how would you get there? If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You're God's child. He's your Father. You were lost and bound for hell, and He saved you by the blood of Jesus Christ and brought you into fellowship with Himself. And delivered you from the bondage of sin, and the curse of sin, and the damnation of sin, and the guilt of sin. He set you free from sin, and you're living at a level not much different than the people that don't even profess to know Him. It ought not to be. And if you find yourself there, I'm not accusing anybody. But I'm saying if you in the honesty of your heart find yourself living at a level in your spiritual life, I'm not talking about what kind of house you live in, what kind of car you drive, and how much money you got in the bank. Those aren't the things we're talking about here. We're talking about peace with God. I said, we're talking about peace with God, contentment in Christ, the blessings of God, the fruit of the Spirit, and having fruit in your life. If you're living at a level not much different than people that never knew God, then you need confronted with the fact that that's not what God meant. His son Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. May I say to you that God meant for us to have more to our Christian life than dragging ourselves to church and suffering through it. God meant for our life to be something totally different and more than that. Uh, our life is not necessarily to be made up of just the things we don't do because we're Christians our life is to be made up of His guidance, His leadership His ability to give us victory, His ability to use us to bring fruit that brings glory to His own name. I'm just saying where are you living today? I'm not accusing anybody, I'm not in a position to accuse anybody, I'm just saying that across the board there are many many people that call Jesus their Savior and God their Father that are living Living at a level that wasn't meant by God. In fear, fear of the things of the world, fear of a financial collapse, fear of a chaotic society, fear of violence in the street, fear of the coming election. Fear of what the next years are going to be like. Fear of how your grandkids are going to be raised. What kind of a country are they going to be raised in? Fear of almost everything. The economy and on. Just on and on and on. And there are many that in that fear are living in spiritual famine. That's not what God meant. That's not abundant living. (laughs) That's not victorious living. Come on, we sang about it. I heard a lot of singing about it. It It's really good. Good congregational singing. Lifting up the voices. Good. Do we know what it means? Oh, victory in Jesus. Or is this just about the extent of what we are as Christians? We go to church. I'm not accusing. I'm just saying. It can happen to us. We can get that way. We can come to a place as God's child of spirit. Spiritual famine and fear, fear of the adversary, fear of stepping out by faith, fear of filling out a faith promise missions deal because I don't know what my uh, finances or income is going to look like a year from now. I can't make this kind of fear, 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 fear leads to spiritual famine. It's not supposed to be. So you know what he did? God confronted him about it, about how they got there. And he sends a prophet. Look down at verse number uh, 6. It says, and Israel was greatly impoverished. I don't mean to make too much of this, but can I show you something here? When it says greatly impoverished, God's not into hyperboles. You and I might. Baptist preachers are often guilty of hyperbole. There could be all kinds of empty space in the, in the auditorium and the preachers say, what a great crowd. We had, I mean, we had a house full tonight, had a great crowd. and I'm standing up here preaching and I'm thinking I saw all kinds of places for people to sit. Well, you know, compared to where we were. Oh, okay. So it's a great crowd compared to that. Is everybody listening here? This isn't going over too good, but I'm just saying, uh, God's not into hyperbole. That's all I meant to say. And if they were greatly impoverished, if impoverished meant they were in this much of a state of despair, uh, I studied the definition of the word impoverished. It has to do with they were languishing in poverty and in famine. They were languishing in it. You know, you know that word? I mean, this is, this is hard to take. And they're languishing in it. It leaves them with a, a bitter countenance. and, a, and a, It's tough all the time. Well, they weren't impoverished. They were greatly impoverished. So let's try to get it right in our mind. We're trying to get a picture in our mind, aren't we, of what it was like? Yes, we are. If you're not, the priests still trying to get you to. What's it like? They were greatly impoverished. So what did God do? Verse 7, "...came to pass, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, the Lord said, no, you got yourself in this mess. You're done. I'm through with you." Aren't you glad God doesn't work that way? The patient, long-suffering, gentle, compassionate God. And the Lord sent a prophet. Now stop here just a moment. In your experience of reading the Old Testament... Did the prophet usually come by to say, Hi, God loves you. I love you. God bless. Bye-bye. Is that how the prophet usually does? Nope. Usually the prophet comes by something like this. We have serious issues. You're in a heap of trouble with God and here's what he says. That's usually how it goes. (laughs) What do you think this would be different? Not really. If you look in chapter 6 and verse number 7, and it came to pass that when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, because the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, who had said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt. You ought to read in the Old Testament how many times God says that. And brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave, I am the Lord your God, and I gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Can I have your attention up here just a second? You ought to read through Leviticus and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and see how many times, just mark it with a red pen, the times that the Lord says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Somebody said, why did He do that so much? Well, why do you think He did that? Because of His insecurities? I tell you nay. He did that because they kept forgetting who God is. They kept willfully turning from God. And so God reminds them. Read it: Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, over and over. I am the Lord thy God. And he reminds, and here he is again. And the prophet comes two hundred years into their time in the land, and the prophet comes and said, "I am the Lord your God." Thus saith the Lord: is What he's saying to you? Fear not the gods of the Amorites. But ye have not obeyed my voice. Now here's the fact: They are in this mess. By their own doing. Nobody got them in this mess. Excuse me. There is no place to point fingers. Moses is dead. They blamed him for everything for 40 years. Joshua has passed off the scene. They don't have a king. They are doing what is right in their own eyes. And God says by His prophet, you are in the mess you're in, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's how you got there. That's how you got there. We look at the United States of America and we say, how did we get here? (laughs) Uh, Let me illustrate it. God, it's noble to kill babies. We're learning now from a certain group that it'd be better for our economy if more babies were able to be killed. Is this sick or what? You've not obeyed God. You're in this mess because you have not obeyed me. I was raised and born in 1945, and I was raised in the time of the 60s. I remember very well the decade of the 60s. It's the year I graduated from high school. It's the year I met Sandra and got married. It's the year I graduated from Bible college, or the decade, not the year, but the decade I graduated from Bible college, the decade we started out in the full-time gospel ministry. The 60s are very important to me, and I can remember during the 60s, basically the Supreme Court says we really don't need the Bible in public education. And the Supreme Court said, we really don't need to have uh, official prayer in public education. Is everybody with me here? And then just with one decision after another decision after another decision, on top of the fact that our universities have been full of the teaching of Marxism for about six decades now, if not seven, and it's an anti-God, pro-evolution, atheistic, I'm just saying, it is a system that is totally against the kind of freedom and blessing that we've known in this country for over 240 years, ladies and gentlemen, and they are opposed to it. Now, how did we get here? Because we have a culture and a society and leadership that says, we don't need God. Secular, we need a more secular society. And if you want a definition for secular, let's just make it simple. Shall we? Leave God out of this. So leave God out of law enforcement. Leave God out of the home. Leave God out of marriage. Leave God out of education. And God's left out of most church, so-called church life, in the United States of America as well. If nobody will say amen, I'll amen myself, but I heard some just in time. Most of church life has alienated God. And there are many that have Baptists written on the name that it's more like a Las Vegas show than it is people assembling together to worship a holy God and to be confronted about the sin of our lives. So God sent the prophet. And he said, you're in this shape because thus saith the Lord, you have not obeyed me. Now let's just keep moving quickly here, shall we? If you find that you're in a spiritually dry place in your life and you feel like, I understand about that fear and about famine lack of an abundant life, a full life, joy in the Lord, happiness in God, contentment in God, being used of God, a desire for God, you find yourself far removed from that. You know what I dare say many people do? Yeah, well, if they hadn't have, or if he hadn't, or if she hadn't, and they start pointing to failures in somebody else's life. I don't mean to be ugly, I don't mean to be unkind. But you just l- 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 let, me, let me give you this. If, you, if Sam Davison is not right with God, it's not her fault. or my kid's fault. Or a church that might have treated me bad, which I haven't experienced yet, or a church many pastors are out of the ministry. Brother Bill, because they got treated bad at a church. Now, hold on, Buck. If you don't love the Lord enough to follow him and answer his call, then just say, I'm not going to follow the Lord. But don't start finding a way to blame somebody else. Well, yeah, but these Midianites. No, the Midianites would be toast if you were right with God. They wouldn't have a chance. They'd be dead meat trying to come after you if you were right with God. And what he is saying is you're in this shape because you disobeyed God. How, how simple? I try to read the Bible, I just can't understand the old King James Bible. Okay, try this. You haven't obeyed God. You're not not right with God because of somebody else or some circumstance. You have no business shaking your fist into heaven and blaming God, who is God. If you're not right with God, go look in the mirror. It's you. Well, why don't you get ugly about it? I'm not trying to be ugly, but I'm trying to be clear. If I'm not right, if she's not right with God, as big a knucklehead as I might be to live with, if she doesn't want to love God, then don't blame me. You can't keep somebody else from loving God that wants to love God. Come on. The record and the history of the martyrs and those that have suffered for Jesus make that very clear. And somebody says, Yeah, but there is a hypocrite. I'd almost guarantee I've met more hypocrites than you have, whoever you are. What's that got to do with anything? Yeah, that preacher failed. Some of our best friends in the ministry bombed out years ago. What's that got to do with me? And God's recall, our call and responsibility for my life. What's that got to do with me? Loving Jesus and walking with the Lord. It has nothing to do with it. So if you're not right with God, and you don't have that joy, and you're living in fear and spiritual famine, it's you. Well, you're not going to have revival preaching like that. We're not going to have revival if you don't deal with that. My my daddy, I, my dad and I are like this. I love my dad. He spent way too much. To the end of his days, bitter, uncomfortable, and unsightly church experience in a small town. Not good. Not okay. and my dad lost his joy, and he was laying on a his actual deathbed. It was about three weeks before he died with cancer. Couldn't even turn himself over in the bed. When you know what, all the joy came back. You know why the joy came back? Because the people he was disappointed in died. No, they were trucking on. I mean, they were still living. No. Well, how did he all of a sudden get joy in here? He came back to God. He acknowledged that God never failed him. People failed him. He acknowledged that Jesus never stopped loving him, and Jesus never failed him. He failed Jesus. My dad acknowledged all of that, and my mom said the last three weeks of his life, he was the sweetest man she'd ever seen him to be, because it all came back. You know how he could get that joy back the last three weeks of his life and be delightful to be around instead of dreading to be around? You know how he did that? Owned up to the fact that he had disobeyed God. And he refused to put away bitterness, though he knew he should. He refused to leave it with God. And he refused to set his affection on God and the things of God and his son, Jesus Christ. When my dad owned up to that fact and dealt with it, All of a sudden, in his dying days, my mom said, sweetest man I knew since we've been married. (laughs) Yeah, that's one little example. I said, that's just one. Didn't even plan to use that. It just came to my mind. It's It's just one. I'm so thankful my dad owned up to it. The funeral didn't turn out to be one of dread, and oh no, and it's so sad that he died that way. Man, it wasn't fun watching him suffer and waste away and, and go from 185 pounds at five foot ten or 11 and go down to under 100 pounds, probably well under 100 pounds. That's not fun. But oh my, the joy of seeing the joy Amen. of the Lord yes. returned to his soul. <laughs> yeah. But you've got to own up to it. I said, you gotta, I, I couldn't pray for my dad that this would all go away. My dad had to deal with it before God. If you know things aren't right between you and God, don't look at some past event. And don't look at somebody that failed you and let you down. Don't look at some disappointment as though God did you wrong, friend. No, don't look at it that way. You got to look at it as that if I'm in love with Jesus Christ then you can't keep me from it and an empty bank account can't keep me from it and a a disease and a sickness can't keep me from it and my best friends turning on me can't keep me from it if I love Jesus I love Jesus period and if I don't I can't have his joy till I do that's what the prophet came by and said You've disobeyed. That's what it is. Now I've got to hurry on this and be done. Look down at verse number uh, 13. Get in. Oh, no, verse 11. Oh, I've got to do this fast, but this is so good. Look at verse 11. So, <laughs> uh, there came an angel of the Lord. He, he had addressed the people of Israel, the nation. near the angel of the Lord, and he sat under an oak, which was an ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abba Ezrite, and his son, Gideon, threshed wheat by the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Real, real fast. My dad was a wheat farmer. I love the wheat harvest. And I'm thankful that I lived in the days of combines instead of horse-drawn stuff and sheaves and all that kind of thing. And what they would do in that day is they'd bring the wheat in and they'd take it to the threshing floor. The threshing floor would be on a rather high place in the area like on a hill, and the threshing floors where they'd bring all the sheaves, beat the wheat out of the head, and they'd beat it on these massive screens, and people would pick up the screens and toss the wheat up in the air, take advantage of the wind, and the wind would separate the shaft from the wheat. The wheat would fall, the shaft blow away. And that's the way they worked it. Uh, He's doing this at the wine press. Wine press? Uh, Wheat farmer and winery is just about as far apart as you can imagine. And a wine press I found, I wouldn't know this by experience, but a wine press in that day would have been in some secluded place in the vineyard, some low place rather, and so that's where they would come and bring the grapes. So here, excuse me, Gideon is threshing wheat, which should be up here, Gideon is threshing wheat, watch now, which should be done up here at the wine press, which is down here. Uh, The wind doesn't blow like that in the low places. So while Gideon and his help are throwing it up in the air, I picture a shaft coming down all over their head. (laughs) A rather futile effort. Tossing it up, no wind, because they're in the wine press. What are you doing in the wine press? Midianites are in the land, afraid, We can't go, we're hiding because they don't know we're down here. Well, you're also not getting your wheat done. Well, at least we're safe. Let's throw some more up. You see the picture here? And that's where they are. And the angel of the Lord comes. This is a Theophanes. This is the Lord in pre-incarnate form comes and talks to Gideon and says, Ho, thou mighty man of valor. Is it his valor that brought him to the wine press? No. Oh, thou uh, mighty man of valor! And Gideon says, Somebody said, I don't read that in the text. Well, you're not reading close enough. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Who might you be talking to? He said, I'm talking to you, you mighty man of valor. And look what he says. This is, oh, this is so amazing. He says to him down here in verse 13, watch, I'm going faster. You'll be all right. Gideon said unto him, oh, my Lord, if, thou, if the Lord be with us. He said, thou mighty man of valour, Oh, Lord, surely you didn't mean me. You couldn't be talking to me. I'm down here in the wine press. I'm scared as everybody else. My Lord, if the Lord be with us, then why is all this befallen us? Where, where's the Lord been in the past seven years? Well, number one, you didn't call on him till just now. You didn't cry out to Him till just now. Yeah, but I've been having this problem a long time. When's the last time you laid it out to God? They just now called on Him. And the Lord is good enough to answer. And He said, uh, why has all this befallen us? And besides that, I've heard of a whole bunch of miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now, Lord, I, I don't see any miracles. We've been forsaken by the Lord. Question, who forsook whom? I said, who forsook whom? They had not forsaken, the Lord had not forsaken them, they had forsaken the Lord and chased after the gods of the Amorites, the heathen, the pagan, the idol gods of the land. And the angel of the Lord says to him, watch this, he says, and the Lord looked upon him and said, go in this thy might. Look at me just a second. Do you know the truth of the matter is, Israel had no ability themselves against the Midianites? Did you know that the truth of the matter is they had no power within themselves to liberate themselves from this situation? None at all. And yet the Lord comes and speaks to Gideon and says, Hold thou mighty man of valor. I submit to you that God is not speaking to him about the man he has been, but about the man he is to become. And he says to Gideon, I want you, watch, to go in this my might. What does he mean, this thy might? Well, I can show you or tell you. I think I'll do both. Gideon, go in this thy might. Gideon didn't have any power himself or he wouldn't be hiding down here at the wine press. Somebody say amen. No. So when he said go in this thy might, who's he talking about? Talking about himself. Gideon, the only way you're going to get out of this mess is me. And I want you to go in this thy might. And when Gideon starts making excuses that I'm from the tribe of Manasseh, not really a high up uh, tribe, and I'm the, my father's house is poor in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my father's house, and God says, but it's not you anyway, Gideon. It's me. And to some people who haven't been in fellowship and communion with God in a while, or maybe a long while. Their situation seems so impossible because I prayed, but they never dealt with the sin. They never dealt with the disobedience. Just, God, deliver me out of this! And I didn't hear a thing from God. And God is simply saying to all of us, no, uh, Sam Davison, you don't have any power over sin. I said, Sam Davison has no power over sin. Neither do you. Well, thanks for the hope. But we'll stay tuned. But in this thy might, says the Lord, in this I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And God's saying to every believer, no, you roll up your sleeves and you do the best you can, and you'll still wind up in fear and famine. I think I'll try that on this side. You, you just roll up your sleeves and try it in the energy of your own self and your own strength, and you'll wind up still in fear and famine. It's not until we not only deal with the fact that we have disobeyed God, but we come and acknowledge His authority in our life and in our hearts surrender ourselves to His will, His way, His time, His working, and understand that it's His might, not my might. It's Him, not me. It's Him, not you. Maybe there's somebody in this room and you've never, ever been saved. You don't know Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to tell you, I've been preaching to saints, to the people of God, to those people that are saved or at least profess to be saved in this room. Sure, I've been preaching to them. But if you're outside of fellowship with God, nothing awaits you but condemnation apart from Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. No, 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 none. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you humbled your heart and confessed your sin and trusted the work that he did on the cross of Calvary? He took our sins and put them on that cross, and he took his righteousness and put it on our account. And the great transaction is done. We are reconciled to God when we put our faith and trust in the work that Jesus did when the Bible says he bore our sins in his own body on that tree. And I think if you I think if you live a good enough life, if I try real hard, I think if I'm I'm as good as anybody else. I'm just saying you know, there's a lot of hypocrites out here, but I think I'm as good as anybody else. Just go on in your own strength, and you'll perish. Yeah. Humble yourself before God, and victories await you. Amen. That's right, that's right. Recognize where we are, acknowledge how we got here, and come to Him and realize it's not me. It's not my ability. It's his ability. Oh God, thank you for what Jesus has done when he came, the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Son of God, and went to the cross to pay for our sins. Thank you that he is the propitiation for our sins. It's upon Jesus that you deal with our sins. When we come to Christ for salvation, we humble ourselves before you, then our sins are dealt with by you at the cross, at the point where Jesus died for our sins. Thank you for that. Now there are saved people in this room who maybe have gotten sidetracked by the noise in the world and the appeal of the world, a lesser system called the world, has their attention and has control of their life right now. Oh God, may they realize that Jesus has provided. Oh yes, He has provided a way that we might be free from that bondage, that we might be free indeed. But we got to face the facts. we got to face the fact that we're in this helpless condition. we got to face the fact that we got here because we disobeyed Him. First and great commandment is to love the Lord. If we don't love the Lord, we're in disobedience. Period. Period. Maybe there's some that their love for you has grown cold. Could be some like my dad did for too many years blamed it on this and blamed it on that. And angry with them and bitter about this and bitter about that. Until he came to grips with the fact it's me. It's me. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, restore the joy of thy salvation. Lord, might your Holy Spirit be at work? You know hearts of men, I don't. You know who's here, I don't. You know what's behind every life, I certainly don't. Might your Holy Ghost be at work? And might we not wait for some breaking point in the meeting, I pray that if you're touching hearts today, that there'd be response and humility before you now, right now. Might your Holy Spirit do his work. Somebody needs somebody to pray with them. May they indicate so. If they just want to come and talk to you, may they have the humility of heart to do so. Bless. If there's somebody lost, oh God, that doesn't know Jesus, that they might be saved. Saved. What a beautiful word. That they might be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? If the Spirit of God's at all spoken to your heart and you know that God should get a response from you, then why don't you come right now? Seven years before they cried to the Lord, seven years after seven years of this to God, Seven years, they cried, he answered. Like that. (laughs) That's God. All he's looking for is a humble heart. All he's looking for is a heart that's ready to deal with sin. It's called contrite heart. That's all God's looking for. He is more than willing to give victory, peace, rest, spiritual prosperity and growth. He's more than willing No need to live this life without it. In fact, I would say it is senseless to live this life without the joy of the Lord. Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be.